صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Rob. How are you doing? Mate, I'm well, Nasser. How are you? Good morning, listeners. How have you been, Nasser? Uh, I'm good. You know, stage four lockdown in Melbourne, but um, as bad as stage four is, we're, we're doing so much better than Lebanon. And obviously, our hearts and thoughts and prayers go out to the Lebanese following the, the devastation of this week's um, explosion. And we should say accident. We're going with accident. I think most of the world's going with accident. Yeah. Well, you mate, Donald Trump. Well, yeah, Donald Trump went out there a bit earlier. Yeah, yeah. Look, I... I the evidence suggests that it's an accident. I mean, that being said, you know, whilst the overlords that control Lebanon have raped Lebanon for so long, uh, how they can allow 3,000 tonnes of that ammonium nitrate to just be stored there for something like five or six years now is just beggar's belief. There's been warnings, isn't there? Look, and, and the th- reason we should really throw our hearts to Lebanon is because Lebanon is, has been abandoned by the rest of the world. Not only is it a small country, one in four people in Lebanon is a refugee. A chunk of those are Palestinians, but most of them are Syrian. They can't go back to Syria today. The Palestinians, as we know, denied their right of return to go back to their homes in Palestine. But time and time again, Lebanon, a small country, one in four people is a refugee in Lebanon. I did not know that. Yeah, the world has forsaken Lebanon for so long. It's not enough that it, a small little country has to deal with 25% of its population being refugees. It has to suffer the indignity and disaster of repeated Israeli incursions, whether it's been the meddling in the civil war, 1982, 2004 and six. I mean, you know, really despicably. And, and I'm cynical here, the reality of Israel offering aid. And one of the things that they said they went, we'll send you aid, but we want to make sure you can't change your packaging. We want the aid to go there with Hebrew writing on it. Oh, wow. Complete stunt. Complete stunt. Because they, they were bombing uh, Lebanon. Not, not, yeah, not yeah. Well, uh, the, the aeroplanes fly over the, uh, Lebanese airspace all the time. You know, the offer of humanitarian aid from, from a country that's killed and injured as many Lebanese and Palestinian refugees in Lebanon and, and regularly, regularly threatens to destroy more infrastructure. I mean, it just, it just makes you sick. It is disgusting. You know, one of the things I, I, I read recently was in 2006, Israel fired more than a million cluster munitions into that tiny country. You know, cluster bombs are illegal under international law. And there was a couple of, oh, not a couple, but a few tweets. And this is the sick, you know, the Ministry of Defence in Israel sent out a tweet under the directive of Defence Ministry Benny Gantz and Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi. The State of Israel has offered medical humanitarian assistance to Lebanon through the international defence and political officials. And Yael Lapid, I mean, this guy, you know, was running for Prime Minister and really a terrible human. I send my deepest condolences to the residents of Beirut during the difficult time and wish a speedy recovery to all. When the Tel Aviv town hall lit themselves up with a uh, Lebanese flag as if, you know, your hearts and minds are with us. 
I mean, it's sickening and beggars belief. I've got no words to that matter. I have no words to to what the um, I mean. I, and I know their their actions uh, horrific on a daily basis, but it just keeps getting worse. We know the Israelis greenwash, they pinkwash. This is aid washing, where they're saying we're going to use aid to wash the crimes of apartheid and what they've done to the Palestinians and, and a big chunk of the Arab world. There are extremists beyond the pale in the Knesset in Israel. Um, one of them, uh, a Likudnik, you know, a member of the same party as uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who was fettered by our prime minister in Australia because we're the same countries, you know, we've got so much in common. This guy, Moshe Feinglein, he celebrated the explosion on Wednesday and saying that it was received in honor of Tuba'av, which is the holiday of love that became, began on Tuesday evening. And he said in his tweet, you don't really believe that this was some messy gas warehouse, yeah? Do you understand that this hell was supposed to fall on us as a rain of missiles? This is what he wrote in a Facebook post, excuse me. Got a twisted, don't I? Oh, and he says, today is a day of joy and a true and huge thank you to God and all the geniuses and heroes, really, who organized this wonderful celebration in honor of the day of love. I mean, that's just sickening, Zion, isn't that? It's worst. Writing a tweet like that in Australia of what would happen. I think the federal police would be over there. Imagine anyone anywhere else in the world. Only Israeli, uh, only Israeli members of Knesset can get away with this sort of vile shit. Anyway, yeah. the good news is, mate, we're joined by a great guest. So, Rob, we're joined by a great guest today. Here we are by Ronnie Barkin, who uh, I have spent some time with in Jerusalem. So I know him reasonably well. He's a Jewish Israeli activist and math teacher. He grew up near Tel Aviv and he's co-founder of Boycott From Within. Ronnie also describes the Israeli treatment of Palestinians as apartheid, identifies himself as an anti-Zionist, and refers to Israel as a Jewish supremacist entity, founded on the basis of ethnic cleansing and ethnic segregation. So he has some pretty strong opinions now, sir. He's a good guy. Hi, Ronnie. Ronnie, one of the first questions we ask to all our guests is the Palestine story. And I know you live in what you call Palestine because you're an Israeli Jew. How did you come into the position that you hold today? because it's very rare to have Israelis to hold such opinions as yourself. So hi, uh, Nassim and Robert. Um, first of all, I grew up like any other Israeli uh, being indoctrinated in one way or another. And the indoctrination is very important. I mean, the, there is a whole mechanism of uh, raising children to be soldiers, basically, and to be uh, blindly supporting the state of Israel, etc. This is how you find yourself uh, as an Israeli or many Israelis find themselves uh, acting as sort of so-called ambassadors for Israel whenever they go outside. They really care about uh, promoting uh, that Zionist project. Uh, it is really part of their identity, I would say, in a way. So uh, like others, I also grew up uh, being indoctrinated in one way or another, but uh, I think that um, it was only acting as some sort of a thin veil of ignorance, which uh, was, uh, I'm happy to say that I was quite... Uh, lucky to um, to overcome that quite easily compared to maybe other stories that we may hear. And for me, what happened is that uh, for about six years, I was contemplating the idea of whether I'm willing to serve in the army or not in the Israeli so-called Israel Defense Forces or Israel Terror Forces, to be more precise. <laughs> um, and even though I was never too much of a nationalist, too much of a Zionist, uh, still we're being taught that if you don't serve in the army, you are some sort of a, you're regarded some sort of a, of a parasite or a traitor. Mm. And obviously I didn't want to be like that. So I did end up, even though I had my reservations about that, 
uh, I did end up uh, getting drafted uh, with with actually thinking that I have um, I could get out of the army at any time I wanted for health reasons. So I, I said, okay, I'll give it a chance and let's see. And indeed, after a couple of months, two months exactly, uh, I, I had this realization, this kind of insight, uh, and I realized that basically, first and foremost, I'm a human being. Uh, more than anything else, more than being an Israeli or anything else. And from that moment on, first of all, I mean, the realization was immediate that I'm no longer a soldier from that moment on. And from that moment on, I'm I'm just a human being. I'm a human being and and that's it. I mean, and, and now that it's their story. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer a soldier and they can do with it whatever they want. Uh, funnily enough, a week before that, I had another sort of a eureka moment, which was there was another thing that I was contemplating for a long time, and that was uh, becoming vegetarian. These days, I'm vegan. Uh, so, um, and and I had this other realization that I have a, a choice in the matter whether to eat this piece of cow or not, etc. And uh, and again, I I had this understanding that okay, it is the thing that I feel most wholesome about is not to eat this animal. So for me, these two are related, coming out of some sort of a brainwashing about um, being a carnivore, and then a week later coming out of this brainwashing about uh, being part of the Israeli army. Uh, and from that moment on, uh, the rest was very easy, actually. It was a very um, liberating experience. And uh, from that moment on, uh, the, the most natural, no-brainer, obvious thing to do is to support those people who are oppressed and subjugated, especially when uh, I am, by law, uh, the privileged person in that position, uh, mm. yeah. where, where the state does everything to benefit people like myself at the expense of all the others. Now, Ronnie, we want to talk about your case, the Humboldt Three. This is a fantastic segue, though, to go straight to Peter Beinart. As you know, he's written a 7,000-word piece in the uh, Jerusalem Chronicle, um, Jewish Chronicle, excuse me. Last week, we had uh, Professor Dr. Peter Slezak discussing it. What are your thoughts on Peter Beinart? And yeah, Peter Beinart has dedicated his life to uh, being an apologist for Israel, to spouting um, Zionist propaganda left and right. Um, now, he's regarded as a leftist. He promotes the liberal Zionist form of Zionist propaganda, which is the most dangerous of them all. The, the only two types of Zionists that I know are the right-wing Zionists, or what I call the honest Zionists, those who are racist and proud of it those who say, yes, there was an ethnic cleansing, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is that we haven't, haven't finished the job. Yeah. There are still some Palestinians left in Palestine. <laughs> and then, and then this is also the acting government uh, in Israel. The other form of Zionism, the other, the other discourse that we hear that is much more dangerous, is that which lends some sort of legitimacy uh, and a liberal cover to this race state of Israel uh, that is... Uh, a supremacist, apartheid, colonialist entity from the get-go, from its very foundation. And I will, to put it uh, in short, in one line, basically the only way for Israel to become a legitimate entity is if it respects the rights of all the sons and daughters of the land, or all 20 million people of that land, uh, where currently it is built for one and only one type of people at the expense of all the others, as I mentioned before. Now, Beinart, I, I appreciate that he is transitioning, that he is, you know, undergoing this life crisis and, um, and uh, trying to, 
you know, he's in a dilemma because he is trying to be liberal and Zionist at the same time, but it doesn't work. This is an oxymoron, a liberal supremacist. Um, But he's still not there. He still hasn't uh, left one bank of the river and and basically taken the leap of faith to the other. So he hasn't still transitioned from Zionism into humanism. And that is, some people think that this is a gradual process. I tend to think that, like I mentioned before, that I had this some sort of a realization about myself and and that led me to to obviously taking um, stand on the right side. Um, and and also for Beinart, I expect that moment where he will have to let go of his very strong hold on to Zionism and then realize, and then he will be liberated, and then he will become an ally, but not a moment before that. What the, the, the discourse that he's uh, promoting today is still uh, just as dangerous as it was basically 10 years ago because he still does goes above and beyond to lend legitimacy to something that is inherently illegitimate supremacist uh, and so on. Now, I can go on and on about it, but I will just give you a few examples. First of all, he conflates over and over again between Zionism and Judaism, between criminal supremacist Zionism, which is an, a, 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 an ultra-nationalistic supremacist ideology in practice, and Judaism, which is a religion of thousands of years. Zionism is no more than hundred and some years old, and it is inherently opposed to everything the Jewish uh, values and Judaism stands for. Um, now, by conflating the two, uh, he again lends legitimacy to this criminal project, uh, the Zionist project in Palestine, in Palestine, and he also kind of diverts the attention from the main issues because he tries to, you know, he gives it cover, another type of, type of cover. Uh, another thing that um, this type of discourse is, is why is it so dangerous? Because it promotes uh, ideas like Israel and Palestine, as if these are two separate entities where in fact Israel and Palestine are the exact same spot of land. One is very literally built on top of the other and at the expense of its, of its indigenous people. Whenever the uh, liberal Zionists speak about Israeli democracy, that is laughable. There is not an iota of democracy in Israel-Palestine. Mm. It is based on everything that is opposed to democratic values, everything that is opposed to equality, the rights of minorities, multiculturalism, and so on. Whenever they call it a Jewish state, it's not a Jewish state, it's a Zionist state. Whenever, um, you know, and on and on, whenever they speak about 50 years, ending of the 50 years of occupation. No, that's just a minor, that's just the, 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 the symptom of it all, the 50 years of occupation. What we are dealing with and the real issue is not the 50 years of occupation, but the 70 years of occupation and colonialism and apartheid and ethnic cleansing. That's what mm-hmm. we have to be discussing. Absolutely. Decolonization is the conversation. Exactly. Ronnie, now on June the 20th in 2017, you and two other activists, uh, Stivit Sane and Major Double Salama, you got together and you protested uh, a visiting um, official from the Knesset from Israel, uh, Eliza Lavi. And you, you were protesting, obviously, her husband, and it was an event hosted by Humboldt University. Now, I've seen the, the footage and this... Um, you're just peacefully protesting. I mean, you, uh, you were manhandled, all of you were manhandled, yet the three of you were charged. And ultimately, you were in court. The final court date was during the week. Tell us about that process and maybe why Berlin and Germany are so, so crazily hostile to Palestinian rights, why you could get charged for such a thing. Yes, in 2017, we were protesting against uh, Aliza Lavi, who is, um, was a member of Knesset uh, from the Yeshatid party. By the way, that party... Uh, on his website, still, um, you will find part of his of its 
party platform is actually opposing BDS and they have these uh, brochures like these um, booklets, uh, how to counter the, the lies of the BDS as they call it. Um, and, and that's what she did. She came on an explicit mission with other people from her party um, to counter uh, the, the BDS struggle and to come up with her. Uh, she went on a proper Hasbara mission, a proper propaganda mission uh, on behalf of Israel and her party, uh, obviously with coordination, uh, in coordination with the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, etc. Uh, so we went there to, to disrupt and to tell her what we think about her uh, her actions. Now, it is important to note that she is not only, she didn't only come uh, on a propaganda mission, uh, her role was in the Knesset at the time, she was also the head of the anti-BDS lobby in the Knesset, in the Israeli parliament, apartheid parliament. Uh, she was also uh, acting as a member of the defense and security uh, um, of the defense committee uh, in 2014, uh, which oversaw the massacre in Gaza, the massacre mm -hmm. of over 550 children, and the liquidation of 89 entire families. Yeah. Uh, and later on, she also uh, acted as the head of the Israeli mission to the European Council in Strasbourg, where basically among her uh, actions, she was defending the mass incarceration and torture of Palestinian minors, and also the shooting of live ammunition against the uh, unarmed demonstrators uh, um, across the fence of the Gaza ghetto. So this is this is the person we were demonstrating against. So after a few minutes that she was speaking, I stood up holding the excellent UN report on Israeli apartheid by Attilian Falk in my hand. And I told her that she was not a legitimate representative. She was a representative of, criminal, of a criminal apartheid state. I quoted from that, from that report. I explained what apartheid is all about. I explained what BDS is all about. Uh, as I left the room at some point, I also handed her the report and asked her to read it. Later on, my uh, fellow activist, uh, another Israeli dissident, uh, Dr. Stavit Sinai, she stood up and she uh, actually um, talked or shouted in Hebrew at uh, Lavi, telling her that she has the blood of the children of Gaza on her hands. She was uh, handled in a, quite roughly handled. I mean, she was surrounded by uh, people. She tried to get hold, uh, to get um, away from their hold, or they were holding her arm and so on. So it seems like there was, there was a bit of a commotion there. Um, and on the way out, apparently, I mean, this was her version all along, but, uh, but we never had proof for that until recently. Uh, she was also punched in the face by the organizers, by one, by one of the organizers. And then as she was outside, she was kind of banging on the door, trying to come back in to get the information, the, the, the details of, the, of that person who assaulted her. Finally, Majid Abu Salama from Gaza, an activist from Gaza, we're all based in Berlin these days. Um, he was sitting throughout this uh, lecture. During the Q&A session, he was uh, asking a question, given the right to speak. He was uh, asking a long question and eventually left of his own accord as they were trying to convince him to stay in and uh, to stay in the room and he left at some point. All three of us for that, whatever I just described now, and it's all on video, uh, were taken to court uh, to, yeah, we were, were charged with uh, trespassing and assault, even though this was a public event, so it's not clear how we were trespassing. And the only person who was actually assaulted was uh, Stavit Sinai, who was punched in the face. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's the story. Now, um, the, the trial started uh, last year, 2019. We had a couple of hearings. Eventually, there was no verdict because of some bureaucratic 
issues in Germany when basically the, the judge could not arrive at a verdict. We also asked to bring in our witnesses, including Professor Falk, to give testimony about his excellent report about Israeli apartheid. Uh, both Tilly and Falk have endorsed us, uh, the three activists, uh, etc. And uh, eventually uh, the, there was no verdict and everything starts over, started over uh, just early this week. And we had a hearing in the court and basically uh, there is a verdict now, the verdict is in. Uh, and two of the three, Majid and myself, were acquitted. And Stavit, because she was uh, also charged with assault, um, Eventually, the, 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 the persecution tried everything in its power and they changed versions so, version so many times. And the judge, throughout the hearing, he tried to get the prosecution off their high horse, eh, asking them just to drop the case. And every time the prosecutor had to go outside to make a phone call to her superiors and, and they told her that she must carry on with this trial no matter what. <laughs> I'm oh. putting it in my words. I don't know what exactly was said, but yeah. basically... Uh, and eventually, uh, um, um, the judge kind of uh, ended uh, acknowledging, and we even had proof that Stavit was actually the one who was assaulted. Yeah, yeah. He ended up acknowledging that um, there was no attempt for assault on her part. There was uh, no one who was actually uh, hurt, but she may have acted in a reckless way in some way when she was banging on the door, and therefore he gave her the most minimal uh, fine he could give, but he didn't acquit her completely. Uh, and that is uh, the end of that trial. Mm. Uh, so yeah, uh, it was a clearly a victory on our part. Uh, the well, you should have got medals, not charged. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, you know I, I, sorry, sorry to jump in. Um, actually, it is funny that exactly a week before the trial of 2019, we were awarded uh, the Copenhagen Courage Award by the co-mayor of Copenhagen, Denmark. Uh, and, and then the week later, for, for the same action, for this action that I was talking about, and the week later, we were, the trial started here, here in Berlin. So this kind of, you know, you can juxtapose these two things. And... Amazing. Now, you talked about, I mean, the reality of the prosecutor going out and getting instructions from her um, controller. Uh, yeah. I understand that Yair Lapid, you know, he ran for prime minister. He sent a letter to, to the Berlin mayor, really yes. putting the heat on. Your lawyer um, said, well, in, in, first, in the first instance, the prosecutor agreed that those charges in a normal circumstance would be dropped. They, for people who've got no um, prior convictions and such low value charges, they would be dropped. But not when it's political. Your lawyer, Matthias, said, well, we weren't the ones making it political. You didn't. And then the prosecutor replied, of course, it's a political process. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. And this was this was during two, the 2019 hearings. And we were able to show, first of all, that the, uh, the Zionist witnesses were lying. And because we had some proof, some videos actually that were recorded by the Zionist delegation uh, that contradicted everything that they were saying. But other <laughs> than that, also the prosecutor admitted that this was a political trial. We also know that um, there were also suggestions to drop the case, uh, you know, within this one-year gap between, you know, the previous trial and this trial that just ended, and the prosecution basically was adamant on going on with that. But anyhow, and, and so one thing is that we showed that this was this was political. The other thing that was interesting is that the prosecutor accused us of opening a, tri a tribunal against Israel. 
And we use that phrase that she, uh, that she kind of was accusing us of to say, yes, actually, we happen to agree with the persecution. This is exactly yeah. what we're doing. We want to put we're Israel on trial. Along with us to court. Yeah. And we have opened a, a, a tribunal against Israel. And what we did, uh, and I will be sending you the video later, uh, actually, uh, obviously, we, we, we had a sort of a support vigil outside of the court, uh, which, which started before the trial uh, last Monday. And uh, we, we literally uh, said, okay, we are now opening a tribunal against Israel and we invite anyone who has anything on their heart, um, uh, uh, you know, who wants to express whatever is on their heart or who, who has uh, concrete accusations against the, the criminal state of Israel to come to the microphone and, and accuse Israel of whatever it is, you know, seven mm -hmm. decades of ethnic cleansing and apartheid and, and dropping a one-ton bomb on Gaza and on and on. And this is what we did. So, so along with the drumming and the music, etc., we were also... Uh, accusing Israel over and over again of different crimes uh, and there were people coming in from across Europe to to join us in solidarity and this was really wonderful and heartwarming um, and and uh, in Stavit's um, statement to the court she uh, quoted from the signs that we were holding outside uh, with the figures of uh, Nelson Mandela and Razan al-Najjar uh, from uh, uh, the, the medic in Gaza who was uh, mm -hmm. uh, executed by the Israelis. Yes, yeah. and, and there was another picture of Sophie Scholl, who was uh, from the White Rose, uh, the anti-Nazi activist in Munich at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, uh, the caption for these pictures was, history will be the judge. And that was the, the theme of it all, that history will be the judge. We are not that concerned about the verdict. We are much more concerned about being on the right side of history. Being on the right side of history. Just a last question, Ronnie. I mean, we had the situation where Yair Lapid is interfering in a trial in another country. We've got the same situation now. Seth Rogen, you know, was on a, um, he did a podcast and he said, mm -hmm. you know, Israel's a crazy invention, etc." He then, his mum then gets a call from Isaac Herzog, you know, he used to lead yeah. the Labour Party, uh, forcing his mum to tell him to call Isaac so he can apologise. I mean, what's going on? Are you being serious? Are you messing me with this? <laughs> no, 100%. That's just so outrageous. Yeah. Ronnie, what, what are your thoughts on Isaac Herzog calling um, Seth's uh, mum? In Canada, yeah, I, I mean, it is it is funny more than anything, and and yeah. unfortunately, it is not uh, surprising because um, you know, first of all, about about our trial, there was uh, we know that Yair uh, Lapid, who was also uh, you know he was a candidate for prime minister uh, mm. not long ago, um, he was uh, acting, he was in touch with the mayor of Berlin who accused uh, us specifically and BDS uh, as a group of anti-Semitism. Um, uh, there was the Aliza Lavi, who was the member of Knesset that we were demonstrating against. She was in touch with the Humboldt University and she was convincing them. And there was correspondence between them and, and both her and the head of the university were kind of uh, putting out some statement uh, that, uh, yes, indeed, we need to, to follow up on this, uh, basically to, to file charges, etc. I mean, so there was definitely a, a political motivation here coming from from the, Israel, the Zionist lobby, let's say, okay, the Israeli part and whoever is here acting on behalf of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and with Seth Rogen, I think that, first of all, I mean, it would be laughable, like, you know, uh, Robert's response was absolutely in place. Uh, it is laughable that, that, you know, the mother of Seth Rogen receives some phone call, et cetera. But, but uh, unfortunately, this is how it, <laughs> how it operates. Um, and, and I think it can only operate in that manner because people are just, um, 
are told to to be um, to to be cautious to to you know fear and um, guilt are really debilitating factors and mm. this is what Israel uses over and over again especially here in Germany of course and mm. I argue that responsibility taking responsibility as as opposed to being motivated out, out of fear and guilt this is sort of an a driving force. Uh, this is uh, an enabling force. So I'm not motivated out of, I don't feel guilty for being born in Israel. I don't feel guilty for being by law, having the status of a privileged Israeli Jew. It's not because I regard myself as Israeli or Jewish, but this is my legal status under Israeli apartheid. But but acknowledging that, it means that I carry more responsibility. And this is a driving force. This drives, this drives me to act and to abolish that system that is about that system of oppression, basically. Uh, so I would argue that I would urge anyone in that position, uh, um, yes, to, to, to let go of that uh, guilt that is being tampered, especially here in, in, in Germany of all places. Mm -hmm. uh, and to, yeah, I would urge them, drive them into action and by taking responsibility rather than being motivated by this guilt factor. Well, Ronnie, we've got about a minute and a bit left. If you can talk to me, uh, why is Germany so, I mean, aside from the guilt for the Holocaust, and they should be guilty, but they're so, so pro-Israel, and Berlin in particular. There's two reasons for that, but the easy answer, because we don't have much time, is that supporting Israel, blindly supporting Israel, no matter what, is a quick fix for German society. Mm. It is a way for them not to look at themselves in the mirror and not to deal with their own supremacy and racism. And I would argue very clearly, and I would say very, uh, I know that this is a strong message, but but I say that by blindly supporting the state of Israel, they have learned absolutely nothing from their horrid past. And the only way to overcome that past is to realize uh, how wrong they are in uh, blindly supporting the criminal state of Israel, which is a race state that separates between what it regards as the Ubermenschen and Untermenschen. Wow. What a fantastic way to end. Ronnie Barkin, thank you so very much, my brother. Uh, all power yeah. to you and uh, good luck on your next adventure. And inshallah, we will have coffee again, you, Robert, and I in Jerusalem soon. Absolutely. It'll be fantastic. And some shisha. We'll be waiting for that.